I have some bad news. I regret to inform you today that I'm going to die. No, I don't know when. I don't know the date of my death. But it is inevitable. And so is yours. So is yours. You may be thinking again, wow, thanks, Joe. There you go, cheering us up again. Told you last week was going to kind of be a little bit of a, of a, a precursor, a setup for this. But the truth is, it's only as we have a proper perspective on the inevitability of our own death. It's only when that is kept into perspective and speaks to the way we live now and frames that with realities to come that we will be able to live wisely and well in this fading world in which we find ourselves. It's ever-shifting. It's ever-growing older. And one day, it will pass away. We tend to live life forward. That's our propensity. We always are looking to the future. But sometimes by living forward and not understanding something that the Bible in general, and very specifically in Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, helps us understand that there is great value in learning to live life backwards. In a sense, to live it backwards. What do I mean by that? That we look at the ultimate end that is coming and not try to fake ourselves, deceive ourselves, or play or pretend or play any games about it. And then... If that is coming, what then should we do with the time that we have here now? How, to use Schaefer's expression, how should we then live in light of that inevitable reality that none of us will live forever here? Now, there is another sense in which we can, and that's what the whole gospel of the New Testament becomes clear and lets us know. And we'll be seeing how this book is going to show us and give us glimpses of and set us up for some wonderful good news. But we need to, as we look at this book, face honestly the need to learn to live life backwards in the sense that we face the truth and work backwards from there and let it condition and influence our life so that we can live with perspective. Living life in perspective is the title of this series. And that's what hopefully the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us do as we begin this new expositional uh, consecutive expository series this morning I'm going to read for our scripture reading from two 
places. The first, the beginning, and the end of the book. Hear the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3, and 12, verses 14 through 15. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then in the 12th chapter, the last few verses, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. The grass withers. The flowers fade. The word of our God remains forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon it now. Father, in this reading of your word this morning, setting up our consideration of this portion of your holy scriptures in this series, Lord, will you come and visit us and give us insight, open our eyes to see and, and open our ears to hear the truth that is important for living now and for living eternally with you forever in the world to come. Father, may we find much that is relevant to help us in our journey now in this shifting and changing and fading world in which we live. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This morning, obviously, is... Uh, an introduction. You can tell that by the title. Introducing, real original, isn't it? Uh, introducing Ecclesiastes. I want you to get familiar with and get a little maybe kind of set up, as it were, for this amazing and wonderful but perplexing and often confusing book. It is all of those things. And this morning, I want to try and discern, first of all, who the author is. Who wrote this? Who wrote the book of love? No, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? And in so doing, I also want to try to take a brief look at that conclusion that we just read and at the introduction that we read before it. So we're going to look at the author's identity, the author's Epilogue and the author's prologue in that order. So let's dig in. First of all, the identity of the author, the author's identity. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, the very name itself, Ecclesiastes, means one who addresses the assembly. Uh, the, the New Testament word ecclesia is the assembly of God's people, the, the gathered ones, gathered. So this is, you can, you can hear the same uh, uh, 
influence in that word, Ecclesiastes, one who addresses the assembly. Or maybe to make it a little more make sense to us in our day and time and with our nomenclature, the speaker of the house. That's the one that addresses the assembly. That's the role of the speaker. And so now the old, some of the older translations, and, and, uh, including the ESV here, uses the word preacher. Uh, but it's either the preacher or we could rightly say the speaker. So the preacher or the speaker, same thing basically. The one who speaks to the assembly, speaks for the assembly or speaks to the assembly, that person is the author of the book. That we are told plain and simple. But who is that is the million-dollar question. Who is the author? Now, look at verse 1 again, and then verse 12 of the same chapter. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then in verse 12, we read, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, there's only one person who is the immediate son of David who was king over Jerusalem and reigned in Jerusalem, or king over Israel and reigned in Jerusalem, and his name is Solomon. So historically, Solomon has been credited with authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, in more recent times, a number of biblical scholars have questioned whether or not Solomon, the direct descendant of King David, king of Israel, his son, who did rule in Israel, in Jerusalem, and built the second temple. There's been some question of whether that, Sol- that Solomon could have or did write this book. It has been hypothesized and suggested that this book was written by a latter day, a, down the road, perhaps even several centuries, a wisdom teacher, what we would call a wisdom teacher. In other words, a rabbi, a, a teacher that was very familiar with all the scripture, and he's using and kind of using a literary device called being a personated author. A personated, in other words, as if he is that person. Or another way to say it would be an authorial, I can't say it, (laughs) authorial voice. He's using, as it were, the teachings that this is what, if Solomon were here, he would confirm and tell you and speak to you this way. Now, if uh, if it also maybe might help a little bit, that notion uh, if you ever watched uh, a particular movie that I've referenced maybe once sometime since I've been here these last 13 years, The Lord of the Rings, um, maybe you've heard me mention it once. But if you, ever, if you recall in the last trilogy, in the last book, there is that comes out from the Black Gates, there is this figure called the Mouth of Sauron, the Dark Lords, 
lackey, his mouthpiece. But he comes and he speaks as if Sauron, because it is the very words of Sauron. It's what Sauron thinks and believes. And yet he is a separate entity that's conveying that message that comes from the heart of Sauron. Maybe, perhaps, it's been suggested that could be what is going on here. But let's be honest. We frankly do not know. A lot of, for instance, the book of Hebrews. Many people think they know the author of Hebrews. Some are absolutely convinced it was Paul. Some are convinced it was not Paul. So we really don't know, and we don't really know here. I don't think there's any way to emphatically and beyond question conclude. But here's the point. The point is, in either case, whether it's the work of the real-life Solomon or a later author using a common literary convention, he was a real person that got his views about God and about the world from God. And he became an instrument in the hands of God to write these words that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. And they have been and remain and always have been considered part of the canon of Scripture. So the bottom line is whether it was Solomon of a thousand years or so B.C., that time frame, or whether it was further down the road, God used an instrument, a human instrument, as he did many of the other books of the Bible to write his words. We read this in 1 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, in this book, it's been produced not by the will of man, but ultimately God, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So whichever one it is, This man was carried along by the Holy Spirit, given these words from God to help us gain perspective and live our lives in better perspective. Now, what about the author's epilogue? At this point, I want to temporarily pass the prologue. So we're going to go to the back first. We're going to go to the back and we're going to act like we're reading Hebrew. We're going to go from the Left to, uh, from right to left, not left to right. We're going to go there first and look at the conclusion of the book. Again, look at it. Verse 12 of chapter 12. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here we find the most significant clue about what the author is attempting to do. This is where, where we find it. Now, you, you can do a, a careful, careless flipping through, a cursory reading of the book, and they can come out completely confused. But there is very much a purpose, a telos, a place that this book is going. It's trying to herd and hem in and channel down to a specific point. 
that cannot be escaped. To boil it down to an irreducible reality and truth. And that is it. The epilogue is designed to lead us, to carry us, to take us to that conclusion of fear God and keep his commandments. That's our obligation. That's our responsibility. That's our duty, if you will, in life. The book says it's the whole duty of man. It sums up, this is what we were put here for. Now, it's not how we're saved, how we get in right relationship with God, but it's saying once we have the picture right and God in his right place, then this is how we are to live in honoring him, in obeying him, in pleasing him. In other words, in everything you do, do it first and foremost for God. That's the point. That's what life is all about. He is to be the Lord of your life, not you, not me, of my own. We find similar sentiments in the great commandment that Jesus gave. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 through 31? Remember, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your mind and with all your strength. And this is the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus is summarizing all of the obligations of mankind before a holy God that will judge everyone and everything. And he's saying, this is what, when you are his, when he is on the throne of your heart, when you are in relationship to him, this is what you were put here to do. To fear him, to honor him, to love him, to respect him, to worship him, and to also do the second part of that. To also love your neighbor as yourself. And that has legion implications. But that's the point. We're not here for ourselves. It's about us. It's about him. Remember how that's summarized in 1 Peter 2.17. Paul says there, excuse me, Peter says, fear God, honor the king. It starts with God. That's at the top of the food chain. Fear God, have the right relationship with him. Respect, honor, and please him. Desire to live for something greater than yourself, and that something is him. And then also, then at the second level, honor the emperor. Honor government, fulfill obligation. It's just a shorthand way of saying, then come all of the second commandments of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God first, then love your neighbor as yourself. And one rightly leads to the other. But if you get it backwards and you start trying, I'm going to serve humanity, I'm going, I'm going to be all about, I'm going, you're still not going to find. It starts with God. It's the only way that it will make sense of everything that will happen in life. It's the only thing that will give perspective on the whole of what goes on here in this world. Now, the third thing is the author's prologue, briefly here, but very important. The author's prologue, going back to the beginning. Solomon knows where he's going to take us, but he's not in a hurry to get there. He's not in a hurry at all. He's going to take us from Dan to Beersheba. He's going to take us from all over the map. 
in order to get us where he wants us to end up. Because he wants to teach us things and he wants us to really grapple with them and feel the weight and the gravitas of what he is trying to communicate to us. He concludes with the key to the meaning of life, but he's determined to show us how far we can get without that key. He basically says, I I know some of you are skeptical. You don't believe that's the way to live. The ending clarity of your being under God and not your own Lord and master, but uh, giving allegiance and honor to God and serving him and fearing him and keeping his commandments both to him and to others. You don't believe that. So he says, let me show you, in essence, where your idea of what life looks like and should be is going to get you. Let me show you where it's going to end up. And that's what he starts doing throughout this book, showing you all the other dead-end streets that the world tells you are highways to heaven, highways to a better world. He puts himself and us in the shoes of the person who starts and finishes his thinking with a finite perspective, not an infinite one. It doesn't look for help from outside, an alien voice outside the world to understand it. It says, I got everything I need. I got my tool bag right here. I'll figure this out. I'll do it my way. As old Frank said, that's the way to find life. And so they, he said, basically, the, uh, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, be my guest. Come on in. Let me show you what life looks like when you try to live it that way. And so, listen again to the perspective. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the preacher or speaker, the son of David in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, The word vanity is often translated various ways. Futility, empty, meaninglessness is a very common one. You will see some translations use meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. But the Hebrew word, the original Hebrew word there is literally the word that would translate directly as breath. Breath, just a, a gasp of air. An, an exhale of breath. How long does that stay there? It conveys a fleeting effect. It is short-lived and transient is the idea. What is vanity that is being talked about here is short-livedness, transientness, Temporariness. By the way, you know that's what contemporary means? With temporariness. <laughs> it's going to change. Just like, you know, again, isn't it amazing? Look at, look at the styles, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago. 
pants were down to here. Uh, now they're up to here and they're like this, you know, they're, 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 they're about like that. They form fitting almost. I mean, you know, it's going to change. It's going, I'm not knocking. I just say it's going to change. It's temporary. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to get across to us. It, it, isn't it interesting? Psalm 144, three through four says this. Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Especially when you realize how temporary he is. That's what the psalmist is saying. This is crazy. God, did you pay attention when we're this transient? He said, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. You think this thing is permanent? You know, men and women forever since time immemorial have been trying to put up monuments to themselves. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. We're going to make something that's going to, long after we're gone, people are going to remember we were here. No, they won't. Eventually, enough time and they won't. And they certainly are not going to remember you as long as you think they will. In other words, even the best things in life won't last and they will slip through your grasp. Also, we must wonder about the, what does the all mean? When he says all, there in verse three, does that include godliness or living life in a God-honoring way? Well, the author gives us an important hint in the last part of that verse. Look, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? He's already said all is vanity, but then he says under the sun. Now, that's a very important expression, very important that we understand what he's saying there. That's an under the sun perspective. Time after time, Solomon mentions this horizontal, strictly human-derived viewpoint. And he says, if that's all you got to decipher the code, to figure it out, to find what you're here for, you're going to keep getting disappointed. You are going to keep running into the wall because it's all under the sun. And what he's going to set us up for in this book and what he's going to be, as it were, secretly driving toward to bring to light, to unearth, to bring to to view the idea that satisfaction and significance is only going to be found with an out-of-this-world perspective, not an under-the-sun perspective. When God is left out of the picture. Nothing satisfies, my friends, and it never will. Satisfaction in life under the sun will never occur until there's a meaning connection with the living Lord who is above the sun and who has sent his only son. That's the only way we will ultimately find the reason why we are here. It's only there that we will find that purpose. Listen to the words of Walt Kaiser in his uh, commentary on Ecclesiastes. He said, life in and of itself, even God's good world, with all its good, 
God-given gifts is unable to deliver the meaning and joy when it is appropriated in a piecemeal fashion. This, as we, have argued, as we argued later on, is the meaning of the prologue. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, namely that no single part of God's good world can unlock the meaning of life. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the key to the questions of identity, meaning, purpose, value, enjoyment, and destiny. In the under-the-sun perspective, it can't do that. Only in coming to know God can one begin to find the answer to these questions. The writer, the author, the preacher, the speaker, Solomon, whoever, is trying to get us to understand that. He's going to help us with this book to see that more clearly. Now, let me ask you something. You're talking about relevancy? Is this book relevant? You bet it is. It is one of the most relevant contemporary matches up to realities we see and live and have heard about and will see again in our world. Ecclesiastes has today's world woven through the fabric of every page. All around us, people are living this, buying into this transient horizontal perspective. And yet they won't be able to hold on to the things they think will make them significant and give them purpose. It's not going to happen. It's an illusion. You see, Ecclesiastes, listen, Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live well in the real world. Emphasis on real Because a lot of people think they're living well in the real world. They think we're the fantasy nuts. We're the ones that are delusional. But they're the ones that are delusional, that have not God's perspective. Because it is all temporary. It's all vanity. It's all transient. It will not hold. And it will not provide them what they were meant by their creator to know and enjoy in perspective. You see, what is here, contrary to Eastern thought, is not some, some a certain Eastern thought, is not illusion. It's not illusion. It's real. It's here. But contrary to Western thought, the idea that they can have it always and hang on to it and its permanence, that is also false. It's not illusion. Eastern, and it's not permanent. It is a gift from God, and it's here for a reason to help us connect and understand why we are here, what we are to be all about. So, my friends, stay tuned. Stay tuned, and we come learn with me together as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. Amen. Father, I pray that you will help us in that journey and give us light and understanding. Help us see where the author of this book is trying to to take us and to see what alone gives us the perspective to living life and to live life well in perspective. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.